Welcome out, ladies and gentlemen, to yet another spectacular episode of Conjectural Technologies, a venture industries podcast. I'm your host, Professor Brock Savage. With me, as always, is my longtime companion, Beast Lamode, and we are joined this week by our resident, uh, uh, shall we say, nemesis of bad community theater, the Vaudevillain. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> I love the idea of somebody like just going around to like little theater productions and high school theater and just heckling, and that's their like villain arch. Like, I, I really just joined the guild for the level one benefits. Like, you get really good help. Right. Uh, what was that like? You know, Vaudevillain shows up at a community theater production of Cats. It's like those buttholes don't look realistic. <laughs> <laughs> Here's your mat artist. <laughs> Now that we've got the Snyder Cut, it's time to, to release the butthole cut. That's all. <laughs> you know, I've, I've seen some people railing on the Snyder Cut because they feel like it is catering to the worst of the fandom, which I don't necessarily agree with because we've already seen that, and it was the rise of Skywalker. When it comes to, uh, like, you know, essentially, you know, here's something that, had been hinted to exist, people really latched onto it because they didn't like the product they got. Um, I remember Mary J. Blige put out an album once, and her fans hated it. So she went back, redid some of the songs, and changed the cover art, and then her fans loved it. Like, that's not bad, per se. Like, that's an artist listening to their clientele. Like, if I'm DJing somewhere, and I play a song that clears the dance floor, say an eight-and-a-half-minute ballad by Warren Zevon about mercenaries in the Biafran Wars called Roland the Headless Thompson Gunner, per my client's request. I can certainly accept the feedback I'm going to get from the clientele and make adjustments from there. You know, I mean, it's not so much uh, for me that the fans demanded it as obnoxious as, as that was. Um, for me, really, it, it's more about um, this whole idea that Zack Snyder was robbed of his vision, and that's not what happened at all. Like, there was a whole, like, crazy narrative with a, you know, personal tragedy with his daughter and, you know, oh, yeah, all those other things with, like, you know, these mitigating factors, but everybody kind of grabbed their, you know, pitchforks and, and torches and, you know, kind of went to rioting, like, you know, this movie was stolen from him. He offered, like, they offered to put the movie on hold, and he said, no, you know, the fans really want to see this. You know, go ahead and put it out. Um, so, I mean, I love that, you know, they're letting him reapproach it and use a lot of his central ideas. And, you know, I mean, I went to film school. I know exactly how much just editing alone can affect a movie. 
Um, but like, you know, just all the weirdness, like for a long time, there were fans com- like, you know, seriously claiming that this movie existed in a completed version and it's just lurking on a hard drive that some evil executive didn't want out into the world because it's uh, too Snyder controversial, man. Snyder himself pushed that idea. Snyder himself said that it existed. And uh, I think that if it existed, Netflix wouldn't have had to pay so much for it. And I love that they kind of – or, sorry, HBO Max wouldn't have had to pay so much for it. And I love that they kind of called him on it a little bit in that you get only enough money to cover special effects – but there's nothing for reshoots. <laughs> well, and also, I mean, reshoots are a logistical nightmare at this point, right? Between learning from COVID and, uh, you know, just generally working with other people's production schedules. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, yeah. budget be damned. Like, I mean, if you wanted to wait another four years for it to happen, we could get the reshoots, sure. <laughs> Well, the other problem with the reshoots is is uh, they wouldn't just be coming at it with the same contracts from the original Justice League with the actors. They would have to renegotiate full-blown contracts, which would basically turn it from the $20, $30 million they want into having to re-sign Ben Affleck, having to re-sign Gal Gadot, having to re-sign Henry Cavill, and that's a lot more than the 20 to $30 million. <laughs> I'm willing to bet almost every single one of those people would jump at the chance to get another crack at this. Like, oh, I may well, be completely wrong. Man, what I would say is they know that they're in a position of power, and they would totally approach it that way. If they're Agent. like, okay, this project has to be made, and, like, Ben Affleck, we need you to come back as Batman, and Ben Affleck's like, I need Bill Gates' money for that, man. <laughs> um, you know, you just that one reference brought up so much of the really interesting theories uh, I've been seeing online about why everything is the way it is. And uh, that is a part of what we are going to be doing with today's episode, a very special feature called Learning Bed, The Future is Wow. And today's episode is going to be looking at super science in particular and the ideas, visionaries, and well-funded industrialists who, in many cases, transformed the world that they were living in and whose ideas not only impacted the world we live in today, but dramatically influenced the style, tone, and structure of the Venture Brothers universe. Now, we know the obvious references. Uh, I mean, you know, Venture Brothers is very much a a parody on, you know, boy adventurers and those kind of... uh, 1960s cartoons that featured a high science fiction element. But, like, really, what do we mean when we say super science? Because they say it all the time on the show, and it has no discernible meaning, but we all know exactly what it is, right? So after doing a lot of pondering and a little bit of research, uh, there is no, you know, official quote-unquote super science. So we're actually covering a lot of new theoretical ground here in a lot of areas. Um, So super science kind of deals with retrofuturism and, you know, speculative fiction as a motif, right? So in some way, uh, and we even see that a little bit in Venture Brothers, like steampunk can be super science, right? Um, It deals with cutting-edge conceptual technology imagined in a contemporary industrial and mundane consumer setting. So all of these high-minded technologies that we, you know, fathom in a sense that we, we can't imagine having today 
in these fictions, they exist with it in our modern world now with those items today, i.e. the Ventures have been walking around with, you know, smartwatches for how long before they even debuted on the market, right? Yeah. Um, so it's well, also a uh, fiction plot device. You know, in terms of super science, like, it, it's very much a deus ex machina. It explains a lot of things that you don't have to worry about explaining. Yeah, it's, um, what, Mark also, Bernardin, it's what Mark Bernardin calls magic. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly that. And what I love about it is you can have a juxtaposition of uh, past technology and future conceptual technology all sitting together. Uh, for instance, okay, so we've got this massive cloning operation for the boys, right? Um, this involves, like, you know, biology um, and, and, you know, various facets of, like, neurology and this, that, the other. Um, there are these cloning tanks that look like Weapon X. But then, like, their memories are stored on reel-to-reel. -reel. <laughs> <laughs> you see the giant server room where they're just sitting yeah. back and, like, having beers, waiting for the kids to finish cooking off? Yeah, one of the things that is so interesting to me about the World of the Venture Brothers, and it's also one of the things I appreciate in a lot of movies like, uh, like Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow, or The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, or um, uh, what was Steam, Steam Boy, right? Um, yeah. You've got, what's that? Yeah, no, Steam Boy was, a, was great. Um, yeah, yeah you've got great. these really futuristic ideas being accomplished with old school tech, right? So what happens? How can you get a, you know, a 1980s giant robot out of an early 1900s, you know, uh, steam power universe? And the Venture Brothers has almost taken an exact opposite approach in that it's saying how do we get a normal, everyday, like almost defunct life out of the advanced technologies of 25 years ago? And it's actually one of the other things I appreciate about it too. Um, you know, Star Wars in particular took a different approach than Star Trek. Star Trek, everything was new and it was nice and it glistened and it was beautiful, right? Everything was clean. In Star Wars, the Millennium Falcon smells like ass. Like, let's be completely honest. Like, the Millennium Falcon stinks. No one makes, a, you know, no one says anything about it, right? Although, you know, there is one point when uh, Han, Han Solo, I think, uh, utters the most sexually tilted line in all of Star Wars when he says, I don't care what you smell, you big hairy oaf, get in there, right? So with that being said, Star Wars was a particularly used universe, according to George Lucas. The idea was that all this fancy technology would be stuff that we take for granted. It wouldn't be the future as wow. It'd be like, why is this so freaking inconvenient, right? You know, most people, when they're talking about their phones, are complaining about how slow Apple is making. We're doing it to preserve the battery. No, you really want me to buy another one, don't you? Uh, you know, so like you're sitting there and going, okay, I've got a device. I've literally got complete access to the sum total of the world's entire knowledge in a device that fits in my pocket. But the thing that pisses me off the most is that it's really hard for me to check in on the racist things that uh, people I've worked with are saying. <laughs> well, you know, man, that's actually, I'm glad you brought that up. That's a, that's a big element of... Uh, quote-unquote, super science, is the consumerist aspect of it, right? So when I did a little bit of deep digging uh, as to where these ideas really kind of came from, uh, a lot of it comes from just pre, 
and uh, you know wartime era, World War era, uh, World War II era. I'm sorry, um, you know American zeitgeist, right? So just before the war, before our entrance, we have the 1939 World's Fair, and this is where like the the famous Futurama exhibit comes from, and that's exactly where they they lifted you know the idea of Futurama. You know, I had you no idea that running was so old. <laughs> right. He he hides it well. Um, I mean, and clear, like, let's go ahead and put him on the list of future. Like, The Simpsons has predicted the future how many times? <laughs> and then Futurama comes back to kind of back clean up on that. Like, um, so getting back to it, right? Uh, the 1939's World's Fair uh, Futurama exhibit was sponsored by General Motors. General uh, Motors. Mm-hmm. Um, and a few others. Uh, and again, well, like, you know, the big corporate sponsorship is a big thing here. Uh, and it was designed by a guy named uh, Norman Belgettis, and he's actually a theatrical and industrial designer. Um, and that, I think it's interesting that he actually also has a theater background because he, he knows how to essentially build these, you know, sweeping ideas into set pieces or background mats and all this. Um, he knows and how if you never met him, you'd know that he was a drama queen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, theater people. Um, no, I'm sorry. I know that there's a lot of theater people who probably was. I was a theater nerd. Um, I was too. Don't be bag on that too much. But. No, I, I feel like there is very, like, so for instance, if you were in the military, you get upset when people who weren't in the military complain about the military, like they're not the ones paying for it. Uh, but kind of the same way with theater people, right? Like, I feel like I have, I am completely entitled to any opinion I have on any of my experiences because I didn't just see it; I lived it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's why actors' in, like opinions on politics are so important. Vote Ned, Ted Nugent, twenty twenty. Um. <laughs> Can you imagine a Ted Nugent Kanye ticket? Oh wow! Is like, is that a concert or a political campaign? Because I'm going either way. Like, (laughs) I just I can only imagine Ted Nugent in high fashion and Kanye with a bow and arrow trying to sing about life in like the backwoods. (laughs) Dude, I just the the amount of fireworks needed for this production. Like, I, I think you you couldn't say it would be as close to like a real life death clock concert. <laughs> I, I think you might be saying a little short. I think the biggest fireworks are going to be coming on people's plates because they're going to have some interesting, exotic and endangered animals on the grill. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Norman Belgetti's designs the, the Futurama and he subcontracts some of the work, right? Um, and then when all of this is going down, uh, 1939, six months into the World's Fair, um, World War II breaks out. And World War II is pretty unique because that's where we get, you know, uh, rockets, uh, you know, really being developed into a serious, like, rocketry being developed into a, a serious science. But that's also where we get splitting of the atom. So, you know, we win the war with an atomic bomb. And what happens? Our scientists become heroes. You know, guys like Werner von Braun, you know, like help us win the war. I'm getting there, right? So guys like (laughs) Werner von Braun 
help us win the war, even help us get to the moon. This man's a national treasure. We don't even care that he was in the Nazi party anymore. Uh, like that, and in fact, uh, Werner, von, Werner von Braun is actually quoted as saying that Jack Parsons is actually the uh, godfather of the American rocketry program. And this was with, with the founding of JPL? Yes. Jack Parsons uh, was there during the founding of JPL um, and Aerojet. And uh, essentially that guy was into some like stuff that was so weird. Uh, and I really know a lot about it, and I'm keeping myself from gushing right now. Like, I, I love Jack Parsons. Um, but this dude was into stuff that was so beautifully weird that during, you know, the McCarthy era, essentially NASA would have rather have had a Nazi take credit for most of its achievements than this wacko. Right. right? <laughs> um, and, you know, kind of going back to Jack Parsons, uh, the mad scientist trope. Like, this guy lived it. Um, you know, and uh, he uh, very much like uh, I, I believe Blue Morpho is actually uh, like very much based on Jack Parsons there. Um, so World War II was when we elevated scientists to like hero status, and then coming out of post-war America, we have you know modernism, mid-century Hold modernism. Hold up, I think you're actually missing an important point here. Many of the biggest science fiction writers of the next few decades were also people who were involved in the war effort and the literature that they were writing. So we're looking at uh, Heinlein, right? Uh, Hubbard as well, who had a very uh, complex <laughs> relationship with Jack Parsons, AKA he killed him. Um, uh, maybe, maybe. maybe. I, 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 I don't buy into conspiracy theories very often, but I, like I'm, that is one of the ones I buy into. Like, Paul McCartney is dead, and, uh, like, you know, L. Ron Hubbard killed Jack Parsons. Um, this is the first I'm hearing about the Paul McCartney is dead thing. What? Yeah, yeah. Like, I did not know that you believed Paul McCartney was dead. I mean, okay, here's the thing. is I don't, like, when I say believe, it goes from, like, a percentage. Like, it's over the 50% mark in my mind with what? evidence. That's crazy. Yeah, I know. That's why I don't tell people this stuff. Like, I know it sounds <laughs> crazy. But here's like, the thing. You I know love he's still alive, right? <laughs> no, maybe. Like, anyway, stop. Just you're baiting me. No. Someone say I'm a master at it. <laughs> uh, so, no, I mean, I don't buy into rusty. conspiracy theories, but I love a good story. And maybe that's my problem is, like, you know, this whole tale of, like, the death of Paul McCartney and then this guy assuming his life, um, like, you know, it's just, it's a really good story because clearly even the guy who assumed his life is talented. Uh, I would like to point out that the same people who buy into that are the same people who joined the Manson family and believed that the Beatles were speaking directly to them. Um, they were. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So, um, and I was actually about to, to going to hit on the, the science fiction authors, because what's happening a lot at this time in parallel, um, there are a number of, like, hobby science and science fiction associations popping up across America. Um, you know, there was the uh, Science Fiction Association of Los Angeles, um, of which, you know, uh, Ray Bradbury and Robert Heinlein were members. Um, Ray Bradbury actually saved up money and traveled to the 1939, like, World's Fair, uh, you know, cross-country. 
um, you know, uh, just to, to see it, what the glimpse of the future can be. Did and I ever tell you about the time I saved Ray Bradbury's life? No, because you told me a story about the time you almost killed Ray Bradbury. So which those, are, those, are, those are actually closer. Th those are the same story. Um, so, but, uh, I did not tell you I almost killed Ray Bradbury. I almost watched Ray Bradbury get killed. Um, so Ray Bradbury is one of my all-time favorite authors. Like his uh, short story, uh, The Sound of Thunder, A Sound of Thunder, I read in the fifth grade. Uh, shout out to my fifth grade teacher, Mr. McKenzie. You were amazing, amazing, amazing. Um, so here's what happened. Um, it, I am in Indianapolis years ago, and uh, they've got this visiting writer series at Butler University. It's amazing. I was able to... Uh, get essentially tickets to this and what would happen is I would go in and then essentially pretend to be helping out as someone who knew about you know tech theater and staging and things like that so what I would do is I'd go in watch the presentation and then run backstage and then start cleaning up right who doesn't want an extra pair of hands that know what they're doing um, so here's what happens from there I get to go to the after part now at Butler where they have this auditorium uh, this massive theater, right? All these seats, and of course it's packed. It's Ray freaking Bradbury. And he is being taken down to the reception. The reception is in the lower level. And the elevator gets you down to the half level, and then you've got to take the stairs down. Not exactly accessible for everyone. So what they've done is they've put two one by 8 down so that his wheelchair can go down the stairs. Now, Ray Bradbury is a very large man at this stage in his life. I believe he'd had a stroke because he actually signed my book with a thumbprint rather than a signature. Um, but he spoke extraordinarily well. He was jovial. What a tremendous guy in every sense of the word. Okay? Um, so they've selected two people to be his wheelchair escorts to get him from the stage down the hallway, down the ramp, down into, to the elevator, and then from there to the half step, right? And what happens then is not great because the two people that they've selected to be his escorts are obviously people who are really good students. What does that tell you about their physical prowess? They do not lift a lot of things. No, they were pasty and wire thin, all right? And so what happens is one of them has one handle on this wide wheelchair. The other one has the other handle. And they're trying to get him up onto these boards that are going to get him down this half flight of stairs. And they're not good at this. The wheelchair starts lurching from side to side. And every single person in that room knows that these guys are about to kill Ray Bradbury. And <laughs> I sprung into action like a guy who just got out of boot camp and found himself at a whorehouse in Tijuana, right? I was not going to let this happen. So I jumped up, grabbed the back, stabilized it, and then managed to, like, because I had control of both handles, I was right behind it, I could stand on the steps and lower him calmly rather than two people trying to coordinate and sending him all over them. I got him down to the bottom, and that man 
in the most magnanimous way, smiled, laughed, and said, oh, how wonderful, just like the teacups at Disneyland. (laughs) (laughs) You know, my favorite Ray Bradbury story isn't even, like, you know, science fiction. Uh, It's the great wide world over there. Go on. Oh, no, I mean, it's just one, uh, it's a delightfully, like, you know, uh, sweet story, but also kind of bittersweet in a way. Um, That's his thing. Huh? That's bittersweet is his thing. You know, he actually got the opportunity to write the screenplay for the Moby Dick movie because of the short story he wrote about the dinosaur and the foghorn. Really? Yeah. That story evoked such genuine longing in the reader that the producers read it and were like, this guy gets it. This guy understands Ahab in a way none of y'all could. <laughs> so the great wide world over there is about uh, a, a lady who lives in, in, like up a mountain, very isolated with her husband, and uh, there's a neighbor across the street, right? But the male, like they're so far out of the way, the male only comes like once a week. Um, so her nephew comes to visit, and this takes place in what you assume is like the like 20s or 30s, and uh, she's not literate. And her nephew comes and teaches her how to read, or at least they try. Because what happens is in the, the zest for, you know, reading, uh, she gets excited and has him start reading stuff to her, and she doesn't really get a handle on reading. Uh, she just gets, like, you know, thrilled by somebody reading these catalogs that they would send off for and these little short stories and correspondence. And so uh, eventually she kind of hops the, the, the learning curve, learns how to read, but doesn't learn how to write. So eventually he has to leave, and then when he leaves, you know, uh, slowly over the course of, like, 18 months, all of the things they sent off for come in and slowly you know, peter away, and she can't send off for them anymore because she can't write. Um, and, I mean, it's just one of those, like, it's, again, very bittersweet. It's got a very genuine and sincere core. Um, and, I mean, it's one of those, like, somehow I, I still would imagine I would get the same sincerity from the, the man who gave me Fahrenheit 451. Like, there's that same kind of, like... Uh, you know, like you said, like this tinge of, of bittersweetness to it all. It's um, also one of the things, like a lot of my favorite music is simultaneously exultant and with a kernel of pain in it. And, you oh, know... that's why I love Lana Del Rey. I tried, I tried really hard to like Lana Del Rey. I really do. I, I don't know what it is about, like, Lana Del Rey. I've been dating her for, like, five years now, and she still doesn't know it. Um, I appreciate her project. It's kind of like the same thing with, like, Massey Star, right? Like, I really liked Fade Into You, but an entire album of it was difficult to get through. Like, or, like, do you, you ever go to, like, a dubstep rave when dubstep first happened? Like, I, I can do one set, man. I can do a set but four or six straight hours of it is soul-destroying. Dubstairs. Dubstairs. Yeah, like, it's just, it's one of those things, like, there is, you know, and the the point of her project is one that I understand, 
uh, it just doesn't speak to me in the same way that it does to certain other people. And I can only assume that having Beast in my life makes me so happy that sadness doesn't speak to me in the same way. That's true. I'm fucking delightful. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, now that we've kind of, you know, these scientists <laughs> kind of looping back into the narrative here, uh, post-World War II, you know, we've won the war. Scientists won the war. Um, and then, you know, all of the, you know, that, that has a big creative impact. Um, you know, that's when the baby boomers start coming around, and they're impacted by this, right? Uh, another big moment in, you know, the kind of development of the idea of super science, uh, Walt Disney, uh, Tomorrowland in uh, 1955. Um, you know, that kind of put him in the, the same category uh, of futurists. And then he even took it one step further. Um, and this is actually, like, I was just delighted reading this because it makes Mr. Brisby make so much more sense to me now. <laughs> but, like, uh, Epcot was meant to be an all-inclusive lifestyle, like, community project, right? Uh, yeah. Did you know Epcot is, a, is an acronym? I did, but I have no idea what it's for. Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. Um, can we talk for a moment? about redundancy in naming? <laughs> Experimental <laughs> prototype. <laughs> you got to make it sound as fancy as possible. Well, i got to tell you, who would want to go to Peacock? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Peacock is what I used to sleep in at summer camp, like, yeah. <laughs> I've been to Peacock. It smells bad. It smells like the inside of Millennium Falcon. Right? Well, and okay, so the idea behind Epcot is actually kind of uh, very rooted in the idea of a World's Fair. Like, the, the pitch behind it is, you know, it is a 24-7 World's Fair. And uh, in the center of it all, you have, uh, you know, the, the giant, what they, most people think of when you say Epcot is the giant golf ball. That's actually called Spaceship Earth. Um, and there's yeah. a, uh, like, you know, General Electric uh, World of Tomorrow ride on the inside of that. Well, you, you've also hit on another really important element here. So we have the scientists winning World War II. Uh, we've got the birth of the atomic age. We also have the dawn of the space age. And that is where the first part of the venture story takes place as we come to understand it. And, you know, Jonas Venture is a product of the space age. That's why we get Gargantua 1. You know, uh, that's where the hover car comes from. You've got this, these very sleek aerodynamic concepts. The, the future is truly wow. We're going to go to the moon again uh, at some point. <laughs> he would have been so disappointed with how this, uh, our <laughs> space program turned out. Um, and, you know, these elements, right, winning the war, the atomic age, and the space program define what the first ethos, the, the operating principles of the venture universe are in terms of its aesthetic. And there are a ton of people, Walt Disney in particular, uh, Bucky Fuller, another one, and, uh, um, oh, God bless, um, it's escaping me at the moment. I'll get back to it later, who in turn promote this vision of what the world could be with enough opportunity. And you see huge amounts of budget being thrown at these really wild ideas, not just from governments, but also from private companies too. 
you know, what what was uh, Nikola Tesla's famous last project, the free energy one, where he set up these massive towers and was going to try and transmit energy across, you know, all um, over the place. It was like the Westbrook Towers, something yeah. like that. Yeah, they, yeah, he ended up having to scrap the whole thing and sell it for parts or something uh, just to pay off debts. And, you know, uh, as as you know, I'm <laughs> a huge fan of uh, Buckminster Fuller. And for those of you who didn't know, uh, it is Bucky Fuller is, uh, he was a professor at NC State. They call him the planet's friendly genius. Um, Bucky Fuller was, uh, what's, the, uh, what's the best way to put this? He was one of those scientists who would have, like, he was a super scientist whose only allegiance was to humanity at large. Um, he created a, comp like, he got tired of people saying, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? Because he was like, you idiot. Being rich has nothing to do with how smart you are. This is not a plug for or against any potential uh, candidate. Um, so essentially what happened was he got so tired of people saying, if you're so smart, why aren't you fabulously wealthy, that he invented a company called Obnoxico to take the stupidest ideas that were going to be fortune makers, just to disprove those, pe those people. And one of the ideas, I think the first idea they came up with was bronzing baby, the last baby diaper, because what parent wouldn't take the last diaper they ever put on their kid in bronze. Really, man, at that point, like, I completely get it, because to me, that's a victory trophy. That's, I don't have to buy yeah. any more diapers. Exactly. Um, and, you know, like, it, it reminded me, do you remember that project that you were playing around with a decade ago called Bad Taste Incorporated? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it was kind of like that, where you had these, like, really off-the-wall, horrible, on the face of it, ideas that would have been millionaire moneymakers. Um, so Bucky Fuller was born in 1895, and in a lot of ways, I kind of look at him as the William Blake to the uh, of super science, whereas guys like Disney were, you know, like the modern romantics, right? The romantic poets. He was the generation before them whose foundation and groundwork set the stage that allowed them to perform so admirably. Well, and he was also a guy who, uh, you know, created a whole product line around a lifestyle. Like, some of the central features of a lot of the stuff that was popping up around this time was, like, streamline. So yeah. everything's sleek, rounded curves, maybe, like... Aerodynamic. You know, yeah, aerodynamic. And, you know, maybe it's got, like, a, a nice, like, racing stripe down the, you know, side of any given whatever, uh, you know, just for a little bit of flair. Lots of, like, uh, molded metal and aluminum. Right. And Buckminster Fuller's uh, like his, I guess, product brand would like his lifestyle brand would be called the, the Dymaxian brand. Like, you know, the, the he had a Dymaxian house, a Dymaxian car, uh, you know, and Dymaxian time. He yeah. reorganized time and sleep <laughs> like this. He wore three watches. Right. Because he slept on Dimax, he, he practiced Dimaxian sleep. It's like that joke from, What's that? It's like that joke from uh, Men in Black. It's like you know, uh, yeah, we operate on Centurion time. That's a thirty-six hour workday. You know, either like you'll break, you'll have, you'll break down and have a psychotic episode, or you'll get used to it. It'll be fine. <laughs> um, so a few things about Bucky Fuller. He invented the geodesic dome. 
uh, he is directly responsible. He is the creator of the architectural concept of tensegrity, right? Um, he, his Dymaxion car held, what was it, 12 people, got 40 miles per gallon or 50 or 60 miles per gallon, um, and that came out in, oh, jeez. I mean, it was, oh, God bless. I can't believe I'm spacing this. Pardon the pun. Uh, but, you know, it was very, it was an old concept, right? Um, he developed ideas for a mile-high tower just in case somebody asked him to build one, right? <laughs> That's planning ahead. He also um, had some really interesting ideas about the development of what we would consider to be the world, specifically human culture and its interaction in it. And uh, the first several chapters of his book, The Critical Path, are um, essentially an explication of how the world developed both socially and economically. And it is a fantastic read. I strongly recommend that you look at it. Um, there are a couple things that history proves that he was not correct in. Um, he actually believed that the Phoenicians uh, were responsible for most of the growth and settlement that eventually became the major cities of Europe. He considered the Venetians, uh, not just the Carthaginians, but the Venetians and the Vikings to be uh, essentially Phoenician in aspect. Um, and part of that was because he pointed not just to the linguistic similarities, right, in their names, but also the fact that the Vikings had two horns on their helmets, uh, which we now know was not the case. Like back in, you know, when those archaeological digs were first taking place, that was the understood scientific construction, was that there were two horns and every Viking was missing one horn off their helmet, whereas now we know that they were drinking horns. So that is one tenuous link but he was using that as one part of a larger explication of how these ideas transmitted through history, irregardless of culture. He was really looking at the oh, idea as a virus. You just said irregardless. I did. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> so, and, and it's funny, you should actually bring up that, that aspect of Buckminster Fuller. Like, if he were a more fit man, this is where he would be going on worldwide expeditions himself, like Jonas Venture. Like, one thing future, like futurists are very interested in is analyzing the past, right? You've got this myriad of data that you can put together. And that's, like, you know, this brilliant formula for adventure. I mean, of course, like, this is where, you know, a lot of the most interesting stories come up. And, uh, like, the history of science fiction itself is super important and parallel. Like, it, it's very, it, it's interesting because it's, simultaneously uh, influencing the real world, but also being influenced by the real world, right? Yeah. Um, and a lot of that, like, kind of comes down to, uh, like, you know, it, its roots um, back in the, the pulp days. Like, a guy named Hugo Gernsback uh, started publishing a series of, uh, like, pulp magazines called Amazing Stories. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, and Hugo Gernsback, uh, he's also, like, he's the, where we, he, he, they named the Hugo Awards after him. He coined both the term science fiction and its predecessor, um, scientific fiction. Now, science fiction, as it comes from as an idea, is actually, I mean, really, if we think about it, an offshoot of fantasy literature, right? Uh, probably the earliest version of what we would consider science fiction 
in, in literature comes to us from like romantic gothics, uh, Frankenstein, right? So, and even before that, you have versions of fantastical, this and that, like, you know, Jules Verne, right? But then you well, start to get and into that's more. Really where I think we owe a lot of the adventure behind science, in that, you know, science, these fantastical things are taking place in adventure stories. Right? Like, imagine if Mark Twain had been writing Huck Finn and Huck Finn had an outboard motor, you know? Right. Like, how would that have changed how that story progressed? You know, they wouldn't have had such a long journey down the Mississippi. <laughs> no, it's a shorter book. Yeah. And, well, you know. And, and so, like, the difference between, like, kind of moving out of that area in literature where scientific fiction, so now we have a branch of fantasy that's all about adventure and speculation and the use of science, right? And then beyond that, like, once it becomes even more self-aware as a genre, once we hit full science fiction, that's where, like, you know, guys who used to speculate the future get retconned. This is where guys like, you know, Jules Verne and H.G. Wells become futurists in the day when they were not called that, you know? Well, and one of the key things to remember about H.G. Wells, that's the guy who wrote a book called The Outline of Civilization, right? Yeah. His, you know, a, he was kind of like, like Will Durant, another one of my heroes, whose ability to look back pres, you know, was in part a way of trying to steer the right way forward. Aldous Huxley was very much an anthropologist in, in uh, a lot of ways. Oh, um, absolutely. The Doors of Perception. Yep. Yeah, no, uh, yeah. And I mean, and then you have like Brave New World and look at where we are now. I mean, uh, and when you look at stuff in, in weird kind of generic strokes, like, uh, you know, was it uh, Orwell? George Orwell foresaw the idea of smart products in your home. Don't you mean or great? <laughs> <laughs> but, and this is actually uh, something I, you know, I, I want to definitely talk about with you guys looping back into the quote-unquote Snyder Cut discussion. Now you get this, like, we have the idea of, you know, uh, futurology, whereas I used to say futurism, and I found out that's not the right term. The, the term I've been looking for is futurology. Um, so now that futurology, like, we've got that kind of established in, you know, uh, the, the zeitgeist and in art and stuff like that, and, you know, we're juicing on it. Now it has the ability to split it, right? What are these visions of the future? You know, what, like, you know, is it, it's like you were talking about, like, the difference between Star Trek and Star Wars. Uh, one is, you know, very much, you know, smooth and polished, and, you know, the Federation is a, a post-Third World War society, right? Whereas, uh, you know, Star Wars is embroiled in conflict, and everything's dirty, and, you know, technology is very much, you know, just a, a thing you do, it's a, you know, thing you take for granted. So now, like, does that, well, I guess the question I want to ask is, do you think that those versions of the future affect our, you know, pathway to the future? So, so the more dystopian future we write, is it more heading toward the dystopia, right? Is that why, like, everybody's assessment of, like, you know, the Zack Snyder films are, are so important is because, like, you know, dark and gritty is where we're heading versus, like, you know, the bright and shiny marble, right? I'm going to ask you to take a little step back really quickly. Was the world that Jules Verne was imagining in his stories a response 
to or an escape from. Well, I guess escape from would be a response to. Like, we can't separate Jules Verne's creation from the experiences he had in the world around him that developed that, right? Like, uh, the ideas that he developed were a direct result of the experiences that he was having. So the question of, is the future that he laid out uh, as being one of adventure, you know, and all these marvelous technologies and things, is that somehow indicative of where the popular imagination was aimed at, or was it almost inevitable because the society that produced that work was already on a given trajectory? And, and that's exactly the, the question. You know, that's, that's exactly it, right? Um, the way I like to break it down is like uh, Walt Disney versus Philip K. Dick. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, both of these men have a... Because I'll be honest with you, the Star Trek and Star Wars, um, while the, the obvious comparisons there, they really, like, it's really apples and oranges. One is space opera... Um, with science fiction elements. The other one is very much, you know, hardcore science fiction with, like, you know, a ton of, like, future, you know, uh, futurism philosophies. Um, You know, I I don't know if I would necessarily agree with that. Like, yes, Gene Roddenberry did have a lot of philosophical elements that he was tackling. He was using Star Trek in a lot of ways to kind of run a Twilight Zone series, right? Like, it allowed him to tackle these issues and explore them. But by the same token, uh, you're looking at Star Trek as being somehow not an adventure story. Like, Star Trek reminds me of the Hornblower stories, you know, which, of course, were significantly older. You know, the Horatio Hornblower, like, if Horatio Hornblower hopped off his ship and, like, porked every native lady, sure. (laughs) Now, again, he toned down the more adventure elements overall, right? Um, but, you know, it was very clear that military decorum was expected the whole time. Like, Star Trek is what happens when the Empire are the good guys. Uh, well, 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 Star Wars, Star Wars is what happens. Yeah, that's a misnomer. The, uh, the Federation, and I will say, the Federation, everybody below the Admiral level, because I don't know what the fuck it is about getting promoted to Admiral in the, the United Federation of Planets, you will, like, just be corrupted. <laughs> but the United Federation of Planets comes from uh, a paramilitary organization called MAKO. Um, like, so the United that Federation of like Planets is not... Huh? That sounds like a retcon. Yeah. No, no, that's not a retcon. MAKO, uh, that, it, it, it's, a, it's so complex. You guys are baiting me. Don't, don't drag me, like, into Star Trek. <laughs> you need to tell me that when Gene Roddenberry managed to get a 40-plus-year-old Captain Kirk on TV and his whole premise was that he had already plotted out, like J.R.R. Tolkien, the entire history of everything up to that point? Uh, He had a lot of the history plotted out. He knew that, okay, so the things we know that Roddenberry had plotted out was a eugenics war in in, uh, World War III in the 90s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And beyond that, like... In terms, essentially, the Third World War uh, decimated the planet, um, and then it was in this kind of decimation where people are demilitarizing. That Ephraim Cochran does the first warp flight, and then they're contacted by the Vulcans, right? 
Um, and that's when, like, you know, they start getting out into space. And uh, I want to say not long after that is where the Enterprise series picks up. And that's where you have the, the Mako. Yeah, so, so you're telling me that Mako happened well after Roddenberry. Because I felt like you were mako in that stuff up. I don't know if Roddenberry made, like, the Mako organization in his history. Because he but died the before Enterprise. Is the United Federation of Planets is a post-military organization. It's yes. a scientific, it's a research, like, I mean, it's, it's an exploratory vessel. They, the United Federation of Planets isn't supposed to have military vessels. Now, I don't know if he went through and wrote, like, every plot point of history that got them to that point, um, but... Like, so it's again, like what happened to the gun on the HMS Beagle? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Evolve this. Yeah. Um, I'm Captain James T. Darwin. Hey, well, and, Turtle, you're green. Well, and that's kind of the, that's why that version of the future really appeals to me. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are implicitly bad things going on here. Okay, think about this for a second. So... As a planet, you're watching, like, you're watching Star Trek, and what do we know? For whatever reason, pop culture stopped in the 90s? <laughs> right? <laughs> That's what they always blew my mind. Well, okay, and if we go by the J.J. Abrams timeline, at least we get some Beastie Boys, like, sabotage, so, like, late 90s. Yeah. But, like, we're so bored as a culture, we're like, hey, hey, build us a really big spaceship, right? And go. I want our top people in that space. Go. Five years, straight line, bring us something new. We are bored. <laughs> <laughs> what when you can there? replicate everything, yeah. what point is there? <laughs> what was it uh, that, they, that these Entrati were after in Robotech protoculture? Like, have, have, has humanity hit the stage where they need more protoculture? Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so don't get me wrong, like, if you really look at the implications of the Star Trek future, uh, it's not as bright and shiny. Like, there are complications. But I love the idea of there's no uh, commercial interest, there's no military interest, you know, there's no Space Force, as much as I want to see Steve Carell in space. <laughs> be awesome. You know, one of the things that actually impressed me the most about Star Trek was that it was as ideal a civilization as one could hope for, because with replicators, they had solved the problem of want. No one anywhere on Earth ever had to want for something. And that was actually one of the things I appreciated the most about it. And I know that it was a production choice. Like, hey, let's have Data play the violin. Or we can run a holodeck thing, right? But, you know, they really emphasized, uh, especially in the next generation, uh, the contributions that each individual was going to make for the entertainment of the group as a whole. And I really appreciated that society could have advanced to the point where an individual's desire to better themselves was one of the primary goals in their lives without ever making it at the expense of someone else. Like it was very samurai, it was very zen in that way where you are legitimately not fighting for position. If you are so good at what you're doing, you'll be promoted, but it is an obligation that you are fulfilling through your duty rather than an honor you are exploiting for your benefit. Yeah, it's a society where people are so well taken care of 
they honestly just have to focus on being the best version of themselves. Can you imagine what a world without want looks like? I was literally having this conversation the other day with Dr. and Mrs. Professor Savage, and we were talking about equality versus equity. Uh, you may have seen the, uh, the Giving Tree covers that have been going around trying to explain the difference. Like, you know, you've got two boys on ladders, the tree is leaning to one side, and one side of the tree has all the apples. And it's like, you know, what are these, these elements? What are the differences between them? And trying to offer a very simple pictorial representation of these things. And we were talking about where that stops, right? If these are genuinely goals that we're going to try to achieve, where does that stop? Does it start with the city doing it? Like Athens essentially building the long walls and, you know, everyone within is equal. And then it expands out to Attica and then eventually, you know, Greece at large and then so on and so forth. You know, what happens if America truly decides to attempt to achieve equity, right? Where everyone gets their shot. Everyone's still got to run their race. But, you know, we're not necessarily in a situation where we're getting, you know, kind of Diana Moon glampered to the point where no one can be who they actually are. And, you know, if we get to that point, what then? Let's say America manages to attain this. Where does that stop? Do we extend it to Canada and Mexico? And then keep going up from there until the entire world is want-free and people are living their lives in the way they choose to, pursuing whatever interests strike their fancy without ever worrying that someone's going to come in and try and hurt them or take their stuff. Well, I love the way that you simultaneously, like, have, uh, you know, talked about how amazing how, like, the Star Trek future is and simultaneously describe the Borg. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and if we're, if we're being honest, that is a key difference in the discussion around what that looks like. Because if everyone is equal in every conceivable way, then at no point are you allowed to express your individual identity. And while there are many things between the two of them that do reflect each other or mirror each other, an individual's ability to choose is the single most important thing that we have going for us. But there are scientists now who say that the idea of an individual with free will is stupid because you are a biological computer and your programming as determined by your genetics and your environmental factors, whatever choice you think you're making, it's not actually your choice. It's these factors getting summarized in your head and getting spit out in terms of your actions. See, you, you want to know what, like, uh, the, the bright and shiny future for me looks like, like the successful future without want? It's a chicken in every pot and a helper in every house. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a great opportunity to start taking a look at robots. There are robots throughout the Venture Brothers. We've seen the robot uh, caterpillars that the monarch uses to terrorize the boys. We've got Helper. Uh, we've got uh, a variety of um, technological innovation to assist, not just around the house, but also at the work site or on the battlefield. And so, when we're uh, one of my favorite things uh, was when they do Helper 2. And they explain Helper was a prototype. And then Helper 2 was a part of, like, the, the, you know, mass consumer launch of Helpers. If you, did you ever watch the Animatrix? Oh, yeah. So, like, the first two chapters of the Animatrix 
were about like you know how the, the robot, the robot yeah. uprising happened, yeah. and this is like the venture version of that, <laughs> where the robots didn't win, <laughs> like the helpers didn't win out, like yeah, the brother because like the the, the, the kid coming war, yeah, and and the kid like you know plucks the the eyes like the LED like you know node out of the eye and like could have almost choked, and so now like you know. Helper 2 lives with Ben, like, in terror of religious zealots because he's an abomination. <laughs> um, there were, actually, i got to tell you, man, that sex of the Animatrix was profound. And I have thought about that many times over the years because there are a lot of people, uh, very smart people, who are saying that AI is the worst thing humanity could do for itself. There are others who believe that humanity uh, is just this. ask your mother. Um, who believe that uh, humanity is just the middle step on toward the life that will eventually supplant us in that, you know, when space is explored and colonized, it will not be by organic creatures. It will be by things that we made sent out in the universe that can survive in space far better than something biological can. Um, and when we're looking at the development of the idea of the robot, the name itself comes from Carl. I don't forgive me if I mispronounce the name, but I always write it as Kapek or Chapek. Um, and it's from a play he wrote, and it's from a Czech word meaning slave. And the concept of the robot has developed over time, and the fear of the robot is something that's been with us almost as long. Um, you know, and one of the things with the Animatrix in particular was that, you know, once it created AI, it was better at doing everything humans did, and it got to the point where humans couldn't compete. Like, you know, these flying cars and that commercial in the Animatrix, like, it's the only vehicle that will maintain powered flight even under catastrophic damage. Who isn't going to buy that vehicle instead of the one that humans made when the human one could kill you if something hits it the wrong way, right? And I would love to see that, like, uh uh-uh, no, we're not doing that here. We need more made by humans. Does, does that tag say made by Homo sapien on it? Then I'm not. <laughs> if it don't say Homo, I don't want no mo. And what I love about um, so uh, I'm really big into uh, the X Men comics, especially recently with uh, the Jonathan Hickman run. And one of the things he's encountered, like uh, I say, encounter like that, he's kind of covering in in the broad strokes of the story is exactly that fight, like you know, uh, biology versus artificial intelligence. But then, like, the big twist is uh, transhuman theory. So what happens, like, because in the comic books, right, the, we've always thought that the humans were the enemy, like the natural enemy of mutants. And that is on, like, a short-term scale. But in the long-term breadth of things, it's really the, the, the thing that humans do well is we can sidestep evolution. Evolution's a response to an environment is what happens when we can master our environment. So now we're going to be augmenting ourselves, uh, you know, with technologies as well. And I think that that's an interesting kind of, like, third theory to, you know, beat the machines, lose to the machines, merge with the machines, you know, merge with the AI. Um, You know, one of the things I was uh, looking at, you know, because you had talked about, like, the technology and stuff, I can't find a genuine example of a walking eye anywhere. <laughs> like this thing pops up, like so. Freaking, it's a it's a running joke on the Venture Brothers, right? 
Uh, I want to say it's something that shows up in Fallout. But obviously, I mean, they reference the only reason you know Venture Brothers was referencing it is because it showed up on Johnny Quest, you know, and stuff like that. And so, really, like, what is a walking eye? What does it do? And they make jokes about it, like it's a walking eye. <laughs> it represents like you know man's like fear of surveillance and machines. You know, essentially, the walking eye. When you think about it, it's just as creepy as that like Star Wars, uh, like the the like scout droids. Like that they have with like the little like tendrils and tentacles yeah. and like all that stuff. Like it, it has that kind of creepy scout factor. Like you know something even worse is coming behind the walking eye. <laughs> <laughs> so your argument is that if we want to make sure that we are being the most effective surveillance, like techno, with the most effective surveillance technology, it needs to be nanny cams, giant walking nanny cams. Uh. So adorable, yeah, no, no one will think twice when a 12-foot-tall stuffed teddy bear comes ambling oh. into the theater. <laughs> it's, uh, it's Bebo from uh, Legends. You just have Bebo running down the street. So one other, one other thing that uh, really struck me about the way robots in particular are, because, I mean, we actually, looking back at it, we don't have a ton of robots as such in the Venture Brothers, do we? We've got Robo some, Blum. but they're not. Uh, they're, they're. I don't even know if I'd call them a feature. They're they're quaternary, not even tertiary. They show well, up. Uh, no, I mean they're they're mundane on every level. So okay, you've got uh, you know obviously helper. Uh, you've got Robobo. You've got helper two. You've got the the Vintech bot, right? Um, but then you also have like Ghost Robot, Galacticon. You know, those guys, and they're integrated. Like, there's almost, uh, and we even hear, like, uh, you know, Sheila name check, like, the Sentience Conference of 1998. Yeah. So, like, they established AI in the Ventureverse in 1998? Fucking A. But it's also not very, it's, you say that it's so mundane as to be nothing, but we don't see it. Like, for instance, do you really think that Doc wouldn't have an army of robot helpers making, like, doing everything for him if he could. Instead, he asked Brock to do it. Well, no, like, they, they tried an army of that? robot helpers, and that could have theoretically killed babies. So they got <laughs> rid of the robot helpers. Like, um, I also feel like the, uh, you know, the robots that they choose to focus on, uh, like, Robobo is very clearly uh, an homage to Asimo, the Honda uh, <laughs> robot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just Asmo, Robobo, it works. Robo Luke, Robobo, Robo the Fat Man. Um, and of course, it's a it's a novelty item at that part. But your your point about integration is well well spoken because you know you've got uh, Ghost Robot and who is it Weatherbot Five. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. It's it's a thing. Well, and well, okay, then, Ghost Robot is is another one of those weird things, right? Because it's implied that you know. He's a ghost in in a robot, which again is some <laughs> weird version of transhuman theory, right? Okay, so number one, now we know it's that there are literally the ghost in the shell. Yeah, and now like their souls are confirmed in the Ventureverse, right? Yeah. Well, and we know that there's some version of heaven and hell because you know Orpheus lives in the closet, like, and that smells like brimstone, or uh, not Orpheus, but Orpheus's master, like the master. Yeah. No, uh, so. What's your, like, favorite science fiction-y element? Like, your favorite gadget, your favorite, like, trope in all of the Venture Brothers? The learning bit. 
without a doubt, the learning bed. Um, because it solves one of the great uh, hopes that science has had for humankind from almost the very beginning. And I, I would say that it, it is the learning bed is the same idea behind magic in that you can accomplish something, right, with by essentially shortcuts. You can go through and maximize your downtime so that you are getting the sum total of the world's knowledge even while you sleep. And you know, that's a really weird way of describing jerking off in a coffin. <laughs> right. <laughs> they, his original name was Mr. Ricci Round. So... <laughs> How about you, Bob Dylan? Um, I'm actually going with a gag. I, one of my absolute favorites. Billy Quiz Boy's hand shoots out but cannot actually be used as a grappling gun. I think that's <laughs> a great example of super science right there. That is like high-minded thinking. That is, I'm going to be able to do this, but none of the actual logistics are worked out, and it would basically rip all the tendons in his arm out if he actually tried to use that thing. That made me laugh for a solid five minutes. I had to stop the episode and go back the first time I saw it. That's good. I mean, it's, it's, you watch the movie, you think you can pull off the science, and, well, it's already installed. Sorry, buddy, you're going to have to live with that one. It Other makes me that, wonder, like, how much pain Winter Soldier is in, like, in his socket and stuff when he's doing all sorts of things, like... It's oh, those little moments where they suddenly, like, really ground a very high science concept where you've never really put the ideas in the minutia of how would this all actually work, and then all of a sudden you're like... Oh, that's attached to his arm. Like, how is he able... He's a little boy, man-child thing. He's not a big, strong, strapping guy. He can't just muscle it up. No, 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 no. That's going to hurt him. He's basically going to die if he ever uses that thing. That was one of the things that uh, impressed me about the... Uh, I think it was the uh, Captain America Civil War, where he's going after Bucky. You know, Bucky essentially jumps off and falls down and catches himself with his arm. But it is blindingly obvious how much it hurts him. Like, Sebastian Stan actually did a great job of emoting that pain in a very small window of time. It, it, it was genuinely impressive. And, of course, it brings up another element that we touched on earlier, which are these human augmentation elements, things that we have seen in science fiction for many, many years but traditionally, when these things were envisioned in the past, like, you know, um, the robots that we would see at Epcot, right? The world of the future, the world of tomorrow, things that were making your life better around <laughs> the, the unstoppable house. metal Lincoln that gave Mr. Brisby a stroke. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, um, you did not see any human augmentation in that vision of the future. The human was perfect. Robots and machines we're going to just make your life even better by removing your need to overexert yourself or put yourself in danger. Whereas one of the key distinctions that we've seen since really like the, the 70s was the idea that putting machinery in you could make you more human than human, make you better at everything you wanted to do. And then, you know, actually we see it even earlier. Uh, that really isn't that what Captain America is, right? engineering. The super soldier serum is essentially cybernetics in a form that they could understand at the time, right? So, you know, when we see these things go on and we start seeing, um, you know, stuff like the Borg, which is a humanity transformed or in some cases completely destroyed 
by these additions. You know, like take cyberpunk to its logical extent and what's left. You know, you end up with uh, Major Katsunagi, you know, who's just a human soul inside a robot shell. Yeah, well, and then, man, you get cyber prog rock, and that just sounds like barcode noise. <laughs> um, you know, man, the thing about like, augmented technology, I think, is just a matter of imagination. Maybe guys like Disney and, you know, Bucky Fuller and stuff like that, they just, they didn't see it at the time. And maybe it's something, you know, uh, growing up in what I like to call, like, the, the RoboCop era, it's, very, it's a fantastical idea, but it is a pretty common idea. Like, when laser eye surgery came out, do you know how mad I was that that's not a surgery to implant a laser shooting eye? <laughs> uh, I do have that's like when you find out cat people are just people who like cats. <laughs> oh, I do have some good news for you, though, Beast. Uh, I saw in an article last month that scientists have developed an artificial eye that will let you see better than regular human vision. You remember hearing, and I, I'm sorry if I'm about to offend uh, anyone who is deeply religious and devout. Um, so obviously we, you know, we know that the human eye was, is descended from eyes that were made to see in the water right? Like the human eye is made to see really well in the water, and we have struggled to adapt to a life outside of the water. We're pretty good at it. We think our vision is pretty good, but it's not as good as it would be if we were in the water. So when we are looking at how to replicate the human eye, because it developed in such a weird way, trying to repeat success with the shape and the form of the eye has actually been pretty difficult. They finally feel like they've gotten it, and I'm excited about the day when I can look up into the sky and see infrared, like, that's one of the things that has always just amazed me, like, the way that snakes can see colors I can't see. Like, I want to see those colors. I would love to be able to see x-rays and ultraviolet and infrared. Like, that would be so amazing. Imagine how much more beautiful a sunrise or sunset would look. With well, more... I've got these mushrooms, Jason. <laughs> right. And I'm pretty sure uh, Superman freaked the fuck out when he first got all of those powers in, uh, what was it, Man of Steel. Yeah, man, seeing in the X-ray spectrum does not mean you got X-ray specs. Like, you get your mind out of the gutter. Yeah. Now, you know, okay, so while we're talking about, like, you know, these kind of concepts, like, where's the black mirror of it all? Like, you know, uh, you, you guys familiar with black mirror? Yeah. No, Beast, I'm living in 2020. Explain to me what Black Mirror is. <laughs> well, I, man, I don't know what kind of rock you live under. Uh, I, I, do, I, I am living an episode of Black Mirror right now. Well, I mean, sometimes the people in the TV shows don't know that they're in the TV show, except in Twin Peaks, but that's a whole other thing. Anyway, so uh, one of my favorite episodes of Black Mirror is uh, called The Entire History of You. And it's about the willow seed implant. Yeah. And at first, Marty, you're like, yeah, that sounds really dope. Like, callback memories, you know, blah, 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 like replay. And then you see, like, the depressing and awful ways people use that technology. And so, like, I feel like, you know, even on some sort of rudimentary level, like, all right, here is this amazing cybernetic eye that would allow you to see blah, blah, blah. Like, where's the black mirror, Jason? Where's the downside here? There's got to be, like, a, there's got to be a twist. 
M. Night Shyamalan is lurking in the bushes. You know what my favorite part of that episode was? Uh, when the woman calls the police to report a beating, uh, the police immediately discount her eyewitness story because she doesn't have the implant. They're like, you don't have the implant. I'm sorry, we can't help you. Like, that, that to me was the most interesting part of it. And when it comes to the black mirror of any of these things, if your question is, will humanity find a way to take something wonderful and screw it up or use it to hurt people? I think the answer is very clearly, yeah, yeah. But I wish life were more like a robot chicken, where, like, the big question of technology is, can you fuck it? <laughs> like, you people realize it was one of Helper's wand attachments. <laughs> of some of the, the actual names that pop up uh, in Venture Brothers, um, Nikola Tesla actually does pop up in, in the 1910 flashback, and apparently he is sided with the Avon lady. Is he lady. also played by Bowie? Oh, in a perfect world, man. <laughs> uh, that, that was the second best part of the prestige. The first part being, you know, 150 seconds. <laughs> um, but no, like, uh, I, I thought it was very interesting that they actually included guys like Tesla in, you know, the, the mythos of Venture Brothers instead of giving him an analog. Yeah. Um, you know, you see him off screen, and I wonder, like, I need to know more about this conflict, like why he sided with the Avon ladies, why he's not in the blimp. <laughs> I want to see what the Avon ladies look like. I just, I got to see what he, they, they pick for that 1910 aesthetic for the Avon ladies. They, it's be you know what the Avon ladies are? It's the 1910 version of the Blackheart's Revenge Society. Oh, my God. That, now oh. I want to see that text before. I want to see that next season. I won't get it, but want to see that badly. Interesting. So... Uh, also, it kind of represents the interest there, because that is something that pops up time and time again in, in you know, science history itself is the idea of, like, commercial interest versus, like, human interest. So on the blimp, you know, uh, Edison wasn't on the blimp, was he? Mm-hmm. No. Uh, Edison and Tesla were also famously fighting. Like, Edison hated Tesla because he was uh, someone who would compete he was someone who could compete. Well, and that's what I'm saying. Like, I'm surprised Edison wasn't in the, the blimp with, with you know, uh, Super Venture Senior. Um, like, the Milner son. The, the, the Milner, yeah. Because, again, you know, it, you get this idea that it's very much uh, one side has a different interest in it. Like, again, I, I just I need to know more about, like, what Orb really did. And what its function was as a machine. Like, is this supposed to be, like, was it that one Greek computer that they found in the ocean that still functions like they, they replicated yeah, it. it still, yeah, or, or, I mean, is it like a perpetual motion or a perpetual energy machine? You know, um, I, I really want to know more about that conflict because... We, again, we already like, know, you know exactly what it is. They already told us in the show. It's a MacGuffin. <laughs> it's a paperweight the whole time. Yeah. Uh, now, all right, so in terms of, like, you know, the, the super science influence on Venture Brothers and, like, how it explores that, uh, would you say that super science, as, as the way Venture Brothers does it, is very much a postmodern look at science and technology? No. And, uh, well, it, postmodern, in, if we're using the word as not the word. Like, postmodern has a very specific definition, right? Postmodern is, at the heart of itself, an exploration of the individual. 
right, in its relationship. Like modernism was Jackson Pollock. It was people taking photographs of water towers. It was these big blocks that looked like file cap, right? Like modernism, brutalism, structuralism, all these things are related. Postmodernism as a concept is, you know, really all about the individual experience, taking it away from these massive structures and these, uh, you know, like anti-symbolist ideas and looking at how the individual's relationship impacts all of these things. And what we see in the Venture Brothers is that, yes, these things are all taking place in a world that is after the modern world. It is post-modern in that sense, right? It is after the future. It is after modernity. But it is not post-modern in the, I guess, more philosophical sense. And yeah, that's I would well, I think maybe postmodern in more of like the the literary sense where things are self-referential, uh, irreverent, um, you know, very uh, absurd. Like in terms of you know pointing out you know uh, the day-to-day goings on of things. Well, because and again, again like that's, that's, that's kind of the whole thing is like you have this high mind like uh, Doc Venture hops in his weird plutonium-powered like hovercraft to go get you know, super science migrant workers. That's the difference <laughs> between the question you asked and what you just said. You asked if technology was used in a postmodern way. And by that, I would interpret it to mean, is the technology, is the way, is the way that technology is impacting people's lives one of system or one of personal engagement and interaction? And I would from what I can tell with the Venture Brothers themselves, uh, it is more applicable in a literary and musical sense, right? Like Venture Brothers is more post-punk than post-modern, right? Um, Because the premise behind post-punk was dissolving the barriers between high and low. And I would put Venture Brothers more in the post-punk category than the post-modern category. I'd buy that for a dollar. You know what? No, I'd buy that for five Hank bucks. <laughs> you know, if we're looking at the relationship of the individuals to technology, there's nothing inherently individualistic about the technology unless we're going to try and point to some of the androids, right? Like helper being an AI is kind of its own thing. But Helper's storyline is never expanded upon. He is still, at the heart of it, a tool. He's the robot that was standing there in the kitchen when Batman went to the world of tomorrow in the Mask of the Phantasm. All right, so, okay, here's some fun things. Uh, What year was the future in the 1939's World's Fair? Like, what year were they presupposing? This is the future of... If I had to guess... I guess it was 1975. 1960. The Futurama exhibit was supposed to represent the future of 1960. So only really 22 years? 20 years? Uh, 39. So yeah, like you know, 21 years. Um, okay, so Tomorrowland. And Tomorrowland is one of my favorite like examples here because, again, this to me is a little bit closer to the venture flavor. Um, when Tomorrowland opened, uh, here is a fun... Uh, list of some of the original corporate sponsors. Monsanto, <laughs> American Motors, Richfield Oil, and Dutch Boy Paint. Mm. 
um, so uh, when Tomorrowland opened up uh, in 1955, what year were they representing in the future? So if we had 20 years out of that one, I would assume it'd be like, if they're going to do it one better, 30 years? Pretty close. How about you, Vaudevillain? Um, God, I just actually watched that uh, Disney Imagineering thing they had on uh, Disney+. Plus. I want to say he actually was shooting a little further in advance because they were going full-blown space age. I think it was like 2040, 2050, something like that. Um, well, that was when they... Thing. Well, well that was when they revamped Tomorrowland uh, in the late 90s. Is that what I'm... Okay. Yeah. Well, and uh, that was, I guess, the, the revamped Tomorrowland opened in Disney World, whereas the original Tomorrowland was in Disneyland. So there is a little bit of, like, you know, uh, quote-unquote, like, you know, margin of error for that stuff. But, yeah, I think the later Tomorrowland was shooting for, like, 2046. Okay. Um, Maybe that stuck in my head. But I know they were always saying the quote for uh, all the workers at the time when Disneyland was first opening was uh, Tomorrowland was always uh, the land on the move because things were always literally changing because they realized how it didn't look uh, futuristic enough. So they would take something out and put something new back in, whereas most of the other lands stayed fairly stationary for those first few years. So what year were they going for? Uh, 1986. Hmm. And, and that would have been like, what did you say, 1955 when the park opened? 56? Yep. 1955. Okay. So, so this is the same gap in time represented in Back to the Future. Yeah. Also, fun it's, fact, uh, to the current date we're at now, so 30 years, right, so 85 to 55, if Back to the Future took place today, they would only be going back to, like, 90-something. <laughs> no, they'd be going to 1988. 88? Yeah, 88, yeah. no. Yeah, 88, because I turned 35. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, they're going back to, like, the, the late late 80s. Like, that is that is mind-boggling to me. Like, well, however, if you think about it, the world of 1988 is a totally foreign place to anyone who is alive right now growing up in this era. Like, the thing a lot of people are inclined to forget is that even though there are a lot of elements about pop culture uh, and TV and movies that feel very similar, the Cold War defined everything about that time period. And those of us who grew up in it remember quite... Dude, I mean, I, I remember quite clearly when I realized what nuclear destruction was. We're not talking about, like, duck and cover. Once I understood what it was at seven years old and really like wrapping my head around the idea that at any moment, every single one of us could, we, could be wiped out. And of course, if I'd known then what I know now about how many accidental crises were averted, I may have been wetting the bed. Like it, it's, it's shocking. It's mind blowing. And fun fact two. Nuclear weapons have been dropped on North Carolina by accident. Yeah. And it's they're still so rare. <laughs> well, and you know what? Uh, that's something to actually bring up when we were talking about, like, you know, the, the tones of, uh, you know, and flavors of science fiction, right? So early on in post-war America, like, we're superpower, we're riding high, we just won the war with science, you know, right? Uh, so the future is bright and shiny, you know, but now here we are in the Cold War, Mutually assured destruction is like a, a very palatable, like, you know, it's a, it's a possible idea, 
you know, uh, everything's dark and bleak, you know, and so a lot of, like, I mean, this is the same era that gave you The Dark Knight Returns. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm a huge fan of Frank Miller and, and you know, that particular Batman story, but in terms of, like, you know, uh, a future, like, you know, that kind of speculation, like, that is a dark and awful, like, there are mutants, like, you know, Batman's given up hope and retired, like, I oh, mean, yeah. like, well, this is, this is an awful place, and it's a uh, nuclear fallout, you know, and yeah, that's a big theme in the 80s. The 80s are the dark side of super science, right? And I think that that's why, you know, to kind of harken back to the conversation we were having earlier about whether the art produces the culture or the culture produces the art. The 80s are the dark side of super science. That's where you see, like, Neuromancer. That's where you see Robocop. Uh, you know, even in uh, the Naked Gun movies, right? the dog with, you know, two tails wagging as they sit outside the nuclear power plant cooling tower, you know? Oh, dude, uh, uh, The Simpsons, uh, Blinky. Blinky, the, yeah. Yeah, the, the fish with three eyes. Yeah, this is after Three Mile Island. Chernobyl has happened. Like, there is no... Oh, by no... the way, uh, glad you brought up Chernobyl. Uh, there's a forest fire there now. So if you're playing your apocalyptic bingo cards, go ahead and knock off radioactive Chernobyl forest fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh wow. Um that's a square. The only yeah, honestly, I feel like 2020 is going to be okay as long as Betty White makes it. Like just 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 get us through 2020, baby. Just get us through 2020. <laughs> well, I feel like we did as a country, we need to invest tax dollars in one person checking up on her every day. You know she's actually older than sliced bread. Yep. I, I looked that one up and, a couple of years ago, and that has shocked me. to still this twice as delicious. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, when we're looking at, and, and actually this brings up another point that I thought that we should discuss, which is the types of science that we are missing in the venture. When we were talking earlier about the types of scientific vision that have influenced the palette that our writers and artists are playing in. We had Disney, we had Fuller, we had Tesla. There are, you know, we had our space age, the jet age. We had the, you know, like the era where science was going to save everything. There are a couple things that we haven't seen that we've seen represented in other media too. Like, so for instance, in later Marvel movies, Tony Stark's suit is not made of iron, it's nanotech. We haven't seen any nanotech that I can think of in the oh. venture. Uh, there was one instance of nanotech later on when Rusty and the guys are in the R&D department uh, in the Ventech Tower, and they accidentally lose the silver. The silver. Oh, that's fluid. right. That's right. But that's literally the only nan – like, they don't put a good spin on it. Like, this is anal probing nanotech. <laughs> <laughs> this is non-consensual nanotechnology. Like. <laughs> Um, one of the other things, too, we were talking about the scientific movement and kind of who is saving society at any given moment. In the 80s, we also saw a shift from the scientist as good guy to the scientist as bad guy who's having a negative impact on you, right? Because, again, what is Chernobyl? Chernobyl is science who can kill us all. What is, you know, the Cold War? It is science can kill us all. And, you know, what you started seeing then, the scientists who were actually having the most influence were essentially social scientists and futurists. Guys like Zbigniew Brzezinski, right, uh, who are essentially plotting out 
almost a form of psychohistory in real time, you know, to hey. borrow another Asimov creation, the Foundation series. Because hey, what they're... Doesn't kill people, lazy engineers do. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, one of the things that we haven't seen as such in the Venture Brothers is one of these, um, you know, kind of, for lack of a better word, think tank characters, even though we do have a character named Think Tank. <laughs> I love Cornell West Modoc. <laughs> right. And it's, it's one of the, and I don't know if it is something that they didn't feel was going to be funny enough, because how do you make a character who is great at plotting? Like, imagine Batman, but bad. You know, Batman, you know, what, what do they call it, the Batman gambit? When you are so good at being able to guess somebody's moves that all you have to do, even though it looks like you're losing the entire time, your final play is that they're going to do what they're going to do by being who they are. And you've already plotted this out to such a specific degree that even though you've been being beaten up for three hours, you know exactly where you're going to land because it gives you access to this control panel. You know, uh, and meanwhile, a character like that in the Venture Brothers hasn't quite appeared. And, you know, is that because it would be too hard to do or it would be impossible to really represent failure correctly? Uh, I mean, yeah, I think that would be really hard because the Venture version of that would be like the half-cooked version. Like, I want to go in, I'm going to get my ass kicked, and I'm hoping they're going to throw me near the panel I need to be. Like, you know, I could totally see them like, oh, wait, guys, uh, could we have this last fight in the lab downstairs? Uh, that's that's <laughs> <all right. laughs> um, And uh, now here's another question for you. Are there other elements of science or super science? Like in the era we're in right now, Frank, um, the super scientists are these technology gurus, right? Do we see that playing out in the same way. Like we've seen Jonas Venture Jr. essentially take on the Steve Jobs role, okay? You know, we've seen Brisby take on the Walt Disney role. We've gotten analogs for, you know, we've gotten Tesla, right? Uh, Edison, of course, hasn't been mentioned. But, you know, we've seen analogs or examples of these real-life characters playing out. Does this epoch mean that the Venture Brothers will have to become a fundamentally different show in order to keep up with where the science itself has progressed to? Yes and no. I mean, uh, again, they're, they're, afraid to, they're not afraid to make major changes to tent poles of the show to shift the tone, right? Like, you know, as we've, you know, explored in, in the third part of the Brock Block. But, like, at the same time, I mean... Let's be honest, like, in terms of, uh, you know, my, like, you know, contemporary representation, yeah, I mean, I, I fully expect to see an Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos type, you know, definitely like a Richard Branson type, you know, this, you know, Richard billionaire. Richard Branson is like the Venture Brothers in real life. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, I mean, uh, the, the billionaire, like, philanthropist scientist is definitely like a newer you know, kind of, uh, it, it's very much a product of the nouveau riche type thing, right? I don't think so, it's a newer thing, though, because if you go back and you look at uh, uh, Kenneth Robeson's Doc Savage, you know, one of my all-time favorite pulp heroes, this is the origin 
for many of the ideas of the superhero as you know him. He was the first one to pull together an international team of experts, go on adventures. Like it was one part Solomon Kane, one part Austin Powers, and one part like uh, United Nations. Well, I mean, that, that's the thing is, again, those are, that's, that's a very, you know, good choice, but again, a fictional choice. Now we're at the point in reality where these men are actually coming through. And when I say, like, actually, let's be honest, you know, for, uh, like, 250-plus years, a lot of white dudes going around the globe exploring, shooting a, a thing and bringing its carcass home is not science. Like, <laughs> right. Tell that to the owner of Jimmy John's. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, a lot of the the things that they were doing in, in the name of, like, exploration and this, that, or the other, uh, really, like, weren't. I mean, you know, obviously there are real cases. Guys like Sir Edmund Hillary, you know, oh, yeah. right? But again, Perry. he wasn't the same, like, entrepreneur. He was, like, I mean, that it blows my mind that there was an age where dudes were, like, pitching expeditions to people. Groups of people, and they're like, yeah, no, give this guy money to go on a trip to Africa with, like, six other dudes and bring back, you know, the heart of Solomon or whatever, right? Like, I'm actually going to say that this paradigm has been in place for way longer. For instance, right, you go back and you look at societies that have been able to afford certain members of its society the luxury of time. Right, like Rene Descartes, we would not have geometry or philosophy as we know it without Rene Descartes being rich and loving to sleep. Like his idle rich worked out so well for all of us, and all it took was the suffering of thousands. Oh yeah, I mean we wouldn't have the Matrix movies without that. <laughs> right. Yeah, no brain and vat theory. I'm doing some pretty hardcore, uh, like, you're gonna have to <laughs> research on stimulism right now. So <laughs> You're going to have to explain the theory. Uh, Brain and vat theory. Uh, basically, I guess to, to put it in modern, modern parlance, is, is stimulism theory, uh, best explained by the Matrix movies, right? Like, we're in a reality nested inside another reality. Um, one of the more prevailing theories by uh, a guy named Nicholas Bostrom out of Oxford he, he, he's a futurist that deals a lot in what's called existential risk. And I don't entirely know what that means, but I feel like existential risk, you get the gist of it when I tell you the thrust of his major, like, you know, paper that put him on the map. So philosophically, in order to find out if we are a simulated reality, the only way to test this would be to create a sophisticated enough simulation that would be... Um, so the Turing test. Indiscernible, like, it would be indiscernible from our own. So the Turing so, test, but the, for kinda, reality. Bingo. But the problem is, statistically speaking, that the second you create your own sophisticated version of reality that is indiscernible from your own, the likelihood of you being in what we'll call reality prime goes statistically way the fuck down. So by proving simulism, you almost fall victim to it. yeah and so what do scientists do there are a group of scientists who are working on building ever more like ever gradually ever sophisticated models of like in simulations of the universe Um, and this is not an uncommon theory like it even shows up in like you know folk mythologies and stuff like again going back to Descartes the uh the brain and a vat theory like or 
are dreams any less real because they're dreams? Yes. You know, and, and are, you know, which is the dream? Like, is, is this the dream? Or uh, when I go to sleep, is that reality? Like, no, no, you know, no, what's no. the actual transition? But if we're going to, you know, if, if, if the, the easy answer to this is the dream is that which, is that from which you wake. Well, but again, like, what is waking? You know, again, like, is waking just a matter of, like, mental transcendence? I actually uh, uh, was it um, uh, transcendentalist meditation. Like, they believe in, like, the four states of consciousness, consciousness yeah. right? They're sleeping, waking, or wa- uh, waking, sleeping, dreaming, and then, you know, shared consciousness, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, is waking up, quote-unquote, like, literally, like, waking up just transcending one level of consciousness to another? I actually have a slightly different perspective on this. Remember we were talking about the eye earlier, right? We were talking about how the eye very clearly developed in an aqueous environment, okay? And uh, I actually have a theory about sleep, that sleep is the original state of consciousness. That's why all mammals do it. And anything that does sleep has an elevated form of consciousness, right? So uh, we can look at all these animals that sleep and say, okay, you know what? When you're asleep, you're not really that aware of the outside world. You are experiencing it in a way, but your experience of it is very, in, like, it, it's so internal as to almost negate the presence of the outside world. It's affected by it, but not reliant on it, okay? So that is the earliest form of consciousness, which is why everything does it. When we look at higher levels of consciousness, being awake is like true consciousness. So anything that sleeps can be said to possess true consciousness, even if it's not something you're comfortable labeling like that. Because, you know, you can point to it as being different levels, right? And you can reach these different states in your waking consciousness state, but the dream state is the foundational consciousness that all conscious life descended from or advanced beyond, which is why we all have to go back to it. Interesting. And, I mean, that definitely puts things into a little bit more perspective, like uh, creatures like sharks. Um, you know, they everybody kind of colloquially calls them, like, eating machines. And, I mean, I get it. You know, I'm not going to take, you know, pre-Jaws approach to sharks, like, or post-Jaws, rather. No, I mean, these animals, like, very few versions of sharks actually sleep. They have to continually move. Other animals, like uh, dolphins, actually will cut off half of their brain at a time. And they're actually said to even have, like, you know, according to which corners of the, the weird Internet you go to, that, you know, dolphins have an advanced level of consciousness beyond human. You know, one, so long other note, for all the fish. one other note is that insects and fish do not experience REM sleep but some birds and all mammals do. Reptiles might also experience REM, and some scientists argue that our mammalian dreaming might be a holdover from our reptilian brains. Now, if birds birds sleep, that means that dinosaurs dreamt as well. Or if birds dream, then that means that dinosaurs did as well. So, okay, insects and fish don't experience REM sleep. Correct. So, no, no REM. That means, like, they just don't like Michael Stipe, or right. they just—they never heard college rock in the '80s. Uh, by the way, uh, did I tell you about the event that I did with Michael Stipe? <laughs> did you? Did you almost watch him die too? No, no, no. I and I did not have to save his life. Um, so 
I did an event. It was for a couple, and Michael Stipe was one of the guests at the wedding. Uh, that dude loves to party. And one of the things I appreciated most about him is that uh, one of the requests, you know, I, I do weddings, bars, clubs, stuff like that, right? Uh, one of the corporate events, one of the things that uh, that I get are requests, right? Oh, I'm, I'm not ashamed. One of the things I get are requests, and one of the requests was for uh, a group dance. And Michael Stipe, this guy who is so cool and too cool for school, was not afraid to get out there and make it work. Like, and that to me is one of the things I love most and one of the things that makes for a great party overall. It's not whether or not you're any good at something, it's whether or not you participate. No, definitely. You know, uh, if you're going to go in having a bad time, you're not going to have a good time. And <laughs> I, I have loved Michael Stipe's music. And that, seeing him engage, made me so proud to be a fan of that man and his work. So, and, and kind of bringing things back full loop here, being that we might be at the end of the world as we know it. So what's, what would you say, like, throughout uh, the course of, of, like, the whole, whole Shabbat, the whole show here, like, would you really say, you know, and I pose this question to both of you, the future is wow. The answer is clearly no. Wait, our future or the show's future? Sorry. Our future. Like, in general, oh. it's the future. Wow. Because, oh. again, like, you know, the thing about, you know, uh, Venture Brothers, again, it, it's very much an irreverent take on it. So, I mean, I expect it to, you know, represent that, like, in, in some version. Like, when they finally get around to talking about COVID, it's, it's going to be funny and very much needed. Um, but, like, you know, kind of... Uh, in the sense of where we're at, like, you know, as venture viewers, as people who are watching, you know, this kind of uh, left-handed view of, like, you know, technology and where it can go, like, is the future wow right now? I think it's wow with an ex uh, exclamation points and question marks. Um, <laughs> there's going <gonna> <laughs> to be certain things that are going to be very interesting. Um, actually, one of the ones I watched recently with Elon Musk, he was on uh, Joe Rogan's podcast recently, and he was talking about neural nets and um, wh what it is he thinks humanity needs to move forward, and his whole thing is increasing the brain's bandwidth ability to input information into it. And the way he talks about it, it, it it's wow on both sides. You're talking about basically hooking your brain up to the Internet and being able to access it that way, and that's wow. I, I, I don't know which way you want to take it, a half glass uh, full empty, but it's wow. Uh, I take it as porn love, porn hub half loaded. Uh. <laughs> you know, to utilize a uh, a dated but appropriate uh, movie reference. Do you remember how much storage capacity Johnny Mnemonic had? Oh man! Mm -hmm. uh, first off, wow, uh, that's a solid pick. Uh, second, uh, I'm going to go ahead and say like. Uh, 258 kilobytes. Ooh, that's a that's a good guess. You are so short. It was 80 gigabytes. Oh wow! Was, like at the time, like I imagining like because when that movie came out, what 95? At the time, like the max amount of memory you could get was uh, what's half of 512? <laughs> right, 256. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, it, we, it, we were still a long way away. That 256, you know, Pentium processor was, was the heat. Um, but 
Do you know what scientists say the actual storage of the human brain is currently? 2.5 petabyte, or 2.5, or I'm sorry, or 1 million gigabyte. Interesting. And so, you know, on some level, I believe that. Um, one of the things I like uh, a lot as kind of a motif is uh, the idea of mind palaces. So uh, when people, like, it, this has been a memory tool for, you know, years and years, um, and when people train for memory competitions and stuff, they use the idea of a mind palace, right? And it's exercising. It's like the, the hippocampus, which is the, the part of your brain that, you know, is associated with memory. The more you use it, the, the bigger it actually gets. It's, it's very much like uh, a muscle that way. When they did, like, you know, brain scans of London taxi drivers, taxi drivers who had been on the job for, like, 20 years, their hippocampuses are huge because you have to memorize every street in London without a GPS. You know, when you're first starting on the job, like, you know, you know the streets kind of, like, you're getting there. But then, like, 20 years in, that thing is, like, swollen and, and plump and almost like there's no room for it in your noggin. It's almost like, you know, just where does the space go? Um, and, uh, no, I believe that, like, you know, with solid exercise, you really can expand the idea of, like, you know, how much memory you can hold. And it's weird, like, memory is such a weird thing anyway. I, I can't really remember what I had for breakfast two days ago, you know, but I can, you know, list off any number of, like, moments in fictional history. Like, if you would like, I can go to, you know, the beginning of the Marvel Universe, 10,000 B.C., <laughs> but you know, I can't tell you, like, what kind of cereal I had three days ago. The idea of the mind palace is not a new one either. What's that famous quote by Boswell about Johnson that, you know, uh, his mind was the Colosseum filled with dangerous beasts? Mm -hmm. Like, that's not a mind palace. It is straight up the Colosseum, and it is filled with every great demon that needs to be slain, and he is, you know, pretty much standing there with his sword, the sword of his intellect flaming in a dark night, ready to slay every dragon. Here be monsters. I'll go get that. Now, my favorite thing is Jonas Sr.'s mind palace is his rumpus room. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's, that's the, the inside of his psyche. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, we've actually gotten treated to several people's mind palaces, and uh, some of them leave a little bit to be desired, uh, and some of them are strictly desired. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> um, so, I don't know, I guess kind of to, to wrap things up, uh, being that, you know, this was, you know, conceptually uh, like the episode featured uh, about my favorite venture catchphrase, I definitely believe the future is wow. And I'll be honest with you, I don't believe that because I see a ton of great things in the world. I believe that because I have kids. And I feel like that's a, just a necessity to believe that, you know, on some level, things are always incrementally getting better. Like, you always find crazy new technologies that are going to wow us. And that's what reminds you that life really is magical. Like, that's really what, to me, the heart of future is wow. And, and futurology is about and really the heart of venture brothers is as silly and absurd and you know whatever else it may be you know the future has the potential to just be wondrous for you know better or worse like it's going to be interesting you know there are you just reminded me of 
a word that we use all the time, but actually has two diametrically opposite meanings. And that's the word terrific. And you, when you think of the word terrific, you immediately assume that it's going to be great. But in reality, that word terrific can also imply terror. And there is opportunities to kind of go either direction. You know, there go I, but for the grace of God, so to speak. And no matter what civilization you're in, at some point it will all come crashing down. Uh, in fact, I believe that, you know, you and I have both been reading the Dan Carlin book, right? The End is Always Near. And yeah. if there's anything history has taught us, it's that a great advancement at any given moment is in no way, shape, or form a bulwark against the chaos that looms, either from the lean, hungry barbarians to the east or the eventual collapse. Uh, what was it uh, Lucas said about the, the Old Republic in Star Wars, the Journal of the Wills? You know, like a great tree that had rotted from within. And when we are looking at what the future portends, I am an old-school Enlightenment guy. I believe in the inevitable perfection of humanity, legitimately a more perfect union, not just for our societies, but for ourselves. And I believe that the long arc of history is one of, you know, not just of justice, but also of the opportunity to bring more people to the table, you know, making sure that everyone gets fed, making sure that everyone gets the opportunity to get their needs met. And when we're looking at what the future of the Venture Brothers is, I actually feel that in the world writ large, our society still has a long way to go before we peter out, before the things that eventually kill off our society take hold and we end up with another bronze, you know, the bronze age, dark age. You know what I mean? Like, well, and the thing is, I think it's always going to be something that we don't expect. Uh, right now, my money is on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, for the betterment or uh, worse of mankind? For the thing worse. that collapses civilization. Okay, yeah, 100%. I thought you had actually, to, like, miracle. no joke, you know, I, I, I joke about TikTok. Uh, actually, I'm going to say it's Quibi. Yeah. Like, that is like seriously, hands down, Quibi. Uh, one of my favorite jokes from 30 Rock is about how sitcoms are getting smaller, and so the guy, like, it makes a 15-second a sitcom. You know, a few years later, Quibi comes out, and it's pretty much Adult Swim-style content for live action, and I completely get it, but it's like, eventually we're going to, like, whittle down our attention span into, like, zero patience. <laughs> hey man, uh, I, I actually am going to give you a little ray of hope there. Vine shut down years ago. Like, think about that. Like, that was the ultimate reductionist approach. Uh, I, I forget how many seconds it was, like six, eight seconds. But the, you know, what was amazing was how much people were able to do with that time. And there were some truly brilliant things on there that managed to tell complete narratives in seconds. That, more than anything else, should give you a sense of the potential of the human mind, the power of human creativity, and that no matter when the end comes, somebody's going to have a great one-liner. <laughs> Fair enough. So how does the, uh, like, all right, how does the end of the Ventureverse go? We know it's at the hands of something Jonas Venture built. No, I've got this one. 
It's um, there's a Ultron uh, comic where it's set like way out in the future, and everything, the entire cities are just big, huge, giant Ultron heads, and there there's uh, just this great scene where he's like standing on top of one of them, and it's the J-Bots. J-Bots are what's going to take all of us down. Um, Joe, uh, JJ's not around anymore to fix them once the ones that go bad and that are still hanging around go bad. And, uh, yeah, I think it's going to be the J-Bots that take us all out. I know exactly how it ends. It ends when something that Rusty Venture accidentally bumps into on Gargantua, right, went flying out into space and circles around the sun for, like, 200 years before plunging in and accidentally starting the sun's expansion. So the earth is wiped out at the peak of its civilization by our sun very quickly becoming a red giant and then swallowing up the earth. And the only thing that manages to help people escape was something Jonas Venture Jr. created on a lark one afternoon that had sat in a corner for 30 years. <laughs> See, uh, okay, I, I love this because what this really like, uh, what this represents is kind of where you're both at in your mindset. Like, you know, Vaudevillain fears Skynet, the Terminator future. Like, man will be our own downfall. You know, uh, Professor Savage here uh, is very much of like what I call the, the Neil deGrasse Tyson camp, like the universe is out to kill you no matter what you do. <laughs> Man, I've read enough Jack Vance to know that uh, there is a lot of life to be had at the end. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so well, with that being said, uh, how do you feel like everything's going to wrap up, Beast? Uh, at the end of the day, I think it's going to be a uh, Caliban's War type situation. <laughs> Like, where the, the planet has been uh, rendered useless through, you know, years of escalation on, you know, these, uh, you know, so-called, like, you know, antagonist uh, superpowers, right? So, eventually, like, it all falls down. Uh, the guild gets their hands on some nukes. Uh, and they're totally convinced that, like, we only need a quarter of the planet. It'll be fine. And, you know, again, renders most of the planet useless. And Gargantua 2 becomes like a life raft. Uh, and, of course, it all... Um, this is going to be a really obscure reference, but uh, if you've ever read Towing Jehovah, like, Gargantua 2 is going to be like the hedonism party when the, you know, body of God, like, you know, is, is uh, stalled out by, like, a trash mound that jutted out in the middle of the ocean. Like, and everybody lost... Yeah, it's just going to be like, you know, this can of hedonism in space. Eventually getting taken by another planet, and, you know, we will start mating with their species. So because, you actually you know, brought up something that uh, I think is worth leaving this episode on. Did you ever read Kingdom Come? The, uh, oh, uh, the limited Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So do you remember what happened, what destroyed the world? It was essentially, like, this, uh, like, all the old heroes had kind of passed, and the next generation of heroes and villains were what was killing everything. Like, they just didn't care. And so, like, they weren't really interested in saving so much as they were just interested in fighting. And I, you know, they were what destroyed the world. And I wonder if the Monarch and Rusty Venture aren't just one step closer to that and that when Hank and Dean eventually becoming arch enemies, 
that they are going to be the ones who actually end up destroying the world because they've been so ingrained with this idea, kind of like Kim Jong-un <laughs> or Kim Jong-il, <laughs> right? Like someone who was raised a true believer that even everybody else thought was cr like anybody, everybody else in the system thought was crazy. Like, you know, because <laughs> really, isn't that how the boys are? Like everybody around them thinks the boys are crazy. Does, do you really think that these guys who head off for an adventure with a flashlight and astronaut ice cream wouldn't grab a tactical nuke? Yeah, that's a possibility. <laughs> I just, you know, I could, I just see Hank riding the nuke like Slim Pickens. <laughs> <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for coming out to join us for our very special Learning Bed episode on super science called The Future Is Wow here on Conjectural Technologies, a Venture Industries podcast. I have been and will continue to be one of your co-hosts, Professor Brock Savage. With me, as always, is my longtime companion, Beast Lamode. Later on, guys. And we were joined this week by our dinner theater arch-villain, the vaudevillain. Thanks for having me, guys. And... On behalf of all of us, wishing you a great future full of wow, I'd like to say, Go, go Team Venture! That was oh, wow, that was actually really good. Yeah. Yeah. We're getting there. All right. <laughs> <laughs>